Good evening, and welcome to this week's episode of the Three Deeper Cuts podcast, your lifestyle magazine for the practicing surgical pathologist and enthusiasts of human disease. So good evening and welcome. Now, every week we try to bring you something to think about, something to read, or something to listen to. I've already told you that Three Deeper Cuts is brought to you by Formal and Fixed Paraffin Embedded Tissue. Enough about that. Guys, it's been a good week. I'm excited about the way things are going. This is going to be episode number 18, and I promised you when we get to episode 100, we're going to have some guests. But I'm still working out the kinks, juggling the duties of a householder and the duties of a working doctor in the throes of community practice at an 800-bed hospital built on an ancient Indian burial ground. Went to bed early last night, about 9.30 p.m., after an evening of Lightning McQueen on Amazon Prime. For $20, Cars 3 provides maximum entertainment in the living room of our urban apartment in Dallas, Texas. Reminded me of Paul Graham's essay, How to Do Great Work, where he talks about don't say no to love. Every other distraction is a hard no. Yesterday, while at the gym, and again at the office signing out cases, I was listening to an episode of Founders Podcast. It was an episode on the letters of John D. Rockefeller that he wrote to his son. And I think it was 30 letters in total. It was a rare out-of-print book, still deciding if I'm going to buy it. The themes in these letters are powerful. You got the sense of this guy with a ruthless competitive drive, which is frightening to most people. Rockefeller refers to himself as a conqueror. And the next thing to conquer over and over again. This episode was rather intense, so you can see why I needed a little bit of Amazon Prime, Lightning McQueen, Cars 3 to unwind for the evening. But there are lessons in the madness in studying these titans of industry. All right, so let's get into it. This week, um, we're going to, first of all, I'm going to try to, I promise you I'm going to do a better job of the ums and uhs. I was listening to some of the prior episodes, and it's embarrassing the amount of likes, ums, and uhs that I'm doing on these podcasts I'm becoming more and more aware of that. It's going to get better with time. This week, I will share with you, so I am up to about 46 pages of the book, No Lab for Old Men. 
and I have not given you a read through of or a read through of the content thus far. So for your listening amusement and for my practice, I am going to read this out loud to you straight off of the laptop. Here we go. No lab for old men. Chapter one. A lot of things had been said about these laboratories across North Texas. How many people drove hours across the threadbare northern plains through Comanche Indian burial grounds to get gastric bypass and a little liposuction? The surgeons around these parts had no pathologist. The hospital regulators would swoop in every two years just to make sure there weren't any rogue podiatrists trying to do hemipelvectomies on these poor, unsuspecting country patients. The general surgeons didn't have much turf left, especially on those sleeve gastrectomies. Most of the time, they would just chuck them in the wastebasket. Nobody out here in these rural towns to read those slides anyways. Nobody until now. Jimmy Tan graduated in the middle of the bell curve at UT. He was a happy guy. Everyone around him was happy too. There was nothing unhappy about this guy. A devout Methodist and the son of a Taiwanese Air Force pilot, Johnny received, Johnny finished a residency and became one of the rising stars in the laboratory medicine game. His career was a straight shot. Recruited by the big private lab over on the east side of town, he spent eight happy years at Cab Lab and was a shoe-in for partnership. The scene at the at the December holiday party in the Cab Lab headquarters ballroom. 45 pathologists are dressed in flowing dresses and black ties. There is a large bowl of orange punch at the end of the long snack table. A gray-haired lady with menacing wide eyes, pink shoes, and a cowboy hat is holding up the punch line. Jimmy is on the other end of the table with his friend, Ron Jagoff. Ron, this lady again, Jimmy, these potato cakes are fantastic. Ron, have you tried the beef tatake? Jimmy, trying to cut back on beef. Ron, wife cheat on you again? Quite the opposite. We are having our second child. Great job. This is a big moment for me. Why are you always such a douchebag? Sorry. I need a drink. And this lady with the cowboy hat is having an annoying conversation in front of the punch bowl. Why is it an annoying conversation? Why are you always so happy? Why don't you just politely ask her to move so you can get some punch? I can't do that, Jimmy, and you know I can't do that. Oh, 
because of that restraining order situation after the Super Bowl four years ago with the uh, hairdresser. Yeah, whatever. Do you still have to wear that ankle bracelet? Shut up, man. Jimmy. Dude, just go ask her to move. Ron. No, something bad will happen and I will get accused of being toxic or harassment. This shit always happens to me. Jimmy. So you're going to just sit here and be annoyed instead of going up there and getting some punch? Ron. You don't know the pressure I'm under, Jimmy. Ron. You are single with two cats and a hedgehog. What kind of pressure are you talking about? Hedgehogs are emotionally complicated animals, Jimmy. You know that. Enough of this. I'll go get us some punch. Into paradoxically... Are you... Excuse me. Are you paradoxically into philosophy and slavery? Frank dashes around Jefferson, does a spin move, and sinks an easy layup. Guy number one. Game on, suckers. The four students play an intense game of two-on-two in the old bleacher hall. Squeaks of high-top shoes echoing against the asbestos-lined walls and ceilings. There was a tall set of bleachers on the north side, and it went up some four stories. The south side was lower. That's where they needed to rest their gym bags. Nobody looked up at the north side. There was a row of lights out on the top sets of bleachers. A dim ray of sun pierced through the bands of old dust floating, floating up there. A lonely sparrow flew in and out, seemingly looking for something. And in the darkest corner was an old man with a long gray hair and a spiderweb tattoo on his left forearm. He was sitting up there with an old transistor radio, radio, a Panasonic from 1973, which crackled over the score of what sounded like an Astros game. The radio switched to an unexpected opera soundtrack. It sounded like German, what could have been Italian for as far as the intramural basketball players cared. The music was muffled through the sounds of breathing, swishing hoops, and shouting as the humans as the students approached a final score of 44 to 38 with Frank and Guy. With Frank and Guy number one about to close the deal. Frank says to his new teammate, if I'd known I was going to be, if I'd known it was going to be this easy, we could have gotten some cash involved. Guy number one. Heads up, Frank. He passes the ball aggressively. Frank, three, two, as he tosses up a fadeaway, one. Swish. And with that final basket, a hissing noise came from the dark corner of the north side bleachers. The old man was standing now with his transistor radio, and there was some 20 sparrows flying in and out of the old window with an eerie ray of light and cloud of dust. The radio spewed a garbled opera melody with which began to fill the gymnasium. The dust particles gathered into a cloud which slithered down the bleacher stairs and onto the court. 
And as those particles gathered in the afternoon sun that seeped through the large canvas-like windows on either side of the court, the ground started to rumble. Guy number three. What's going on? Frank. No idea, fellas. Hit the deck. It feels like an earthquake. Jefferson. You idiots hit the deck. I'm out of here. Jefferson takes off in a weekly athletic spring across the glossy floor, losing his footing every third step, and he crossed the opposing three-point line of the court, and there began a rumble, louder, and a colossal chasm split down the center line of the court. The collegiate-sized wooden floor of the university gymnasium split like a seam down the middle in a horrifying cascade of crumbling concrete and ash. The boys started coughing violently and scraped their spindly legs to scoot themselves away from the rapidly expanding seam, and with and within seconds it was becoming a canyon. Jefferson's last-ditch escape attempt was in utter futility as his foot became trapped under the concrete slabs, and as he sunk deeper into the chasm under the basketball net closer to the large double doors of the gymnasium entrance. He was the closest of the four to safety, and oddly, the closest to disaster. The boys watched in horror as Jefferson clawed desperately with his fingernails to climb up, now with bleeding fingers and palms. The earth was shaking and debris was falling from the gymnasium ceiling. Old banners and pennants from years past when the Mustangs were actually good. Jefferson had never known fear like this. A warm stream of urine careened down his left pant leg and deeper still into the chasm, which was now forming an irregular staircase arcing around the sides. The opera music from where the old man was sitting on the north side of the bleachers was now screaming at the boys, who were now mostly in tears, except Frank. Frank's eyes rolled back as the earth rumbled and heaved. He had scooted himself into a flexed posture and his legs were in a spasm of contracture. The boys called to him, but their attention shifted to to Jefferson, who was hanging on for his life. None of them knew how deep the chasm ran, and none of them could believe their eyes. Chapter 4 Paul grew up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, around farm boys and 4-H people. Never liked it. Everywhere he went, he was looking for a way out. The big city is where he wanted to be. Paul was the only Spanish kid in his elementary school, in his high school, and in his college and medical school. By the time he joined a private practice in Dallas, Texas, he was sick of being the only brown person. These days, he didn't have that problem. He was home. The scene. In the basement pathology offices, the secretaries are bringing out peanut brittle cupcakes, giant cookies, chips and salsa, ice cream, hot dogs, cheeseburgers, orange soda, pork belly, and a six-gallon tub of Laffy Taffy for a mid-morning snack. Paul. How am I going to get a six-pack in this place? Sheila. Hey, Dr. P., can you get some breakfast?
Paul says, you're sweet. I had a bowl of oatmeal at home already. Next time. Sheila. Suit yourself, Dr. P. Say, did you get the facts I left in your office? Paul. Heading there right now. Thanks, Sheila. Paul worked his way through the lab conference room and arrives at his office. There is a thin layer of dust on his microscope again. Forget the facts, but that just came in from overnight. It's a pale white powder, barely noticeable to the naked eye. Paul had been stewing over this for six months. Every weekend, he forgets to put that microscope cover on. After ten minutes of intense dusting, he reaches over to his inbox, and the fax reads, To Dr. Paul Soldana. Or excuse me, Dr. Paul Vargas. From W.E. Smash Cancer Center. Paul. Damn. A slide request. What did I miss? Siri from Paul's iPhone responds, I'm sorry, I didn't get that. Paul slams down his iPhone. Not you too, Siri. Sheila pokes her head in the door. Who are you talking to in here, Doc? Oh, nobody, Sheila. It's W.E. Smash with another slide request. These things always make me nervous. Sheila, you want me to call the G.I. Doc? Paul, no, that's okay. Let me look at the case again. Sheila, let me get you some coffee, honey. Cream? Paul, please and thanks. Paul opens the slide tray and starts looking at the case. The requisition says, 60-year-old man with visit for screening colonoscopy, polyps of the colon. Specimens. Container A is labeled, quote, transverse colon polyps, 2X polyps, 3X polyps, question mark, stomach antrum, two more polyps, half a polyp, and also please do H. pylori and look for mast cells, end quote. Paul, this is insane. Sheila, here's that coffee, Dr. P. Paul, you're such a sweetheart. Is that the guy from El Paso again? WhatsApp is listening. Oh, I'm sorry, baby. You know how I get excited. Paul, I think I know what's going on. This guy had a couple serrated polyps, but they were mixed up with some other polyps. I wasn't sure if it was one polyp or two. Whatever. Let me show Drew. Sheila. Don't forget that lung biopsy from Friday. They want to send that down to the cancer center, too. The one where the immunostains were inconsistent? Yes, Sheila says, looking apprehensive. Paul walks over to Drew's office. Drew is the new guy from California. He talks like a Californian, but has an oddly libertarian slant in all of his lunch conversations. Paul is still feeling him out, but figures the guy is probably all right. Drew did some of his fellowship at W.E. Smash Cancer Center, so he probably has an idea of what goes on there. This place prides themselves on finding sneaky cancers from community hospitals where the pathologist missed something. 
On the interstate, there is a glowing billboard halfway to Austin with a dancing oncologist. The sign reads, At W.E. Smash Cancer, we are on a mission to destroy cancer. If we can't destroy your cancer, we will destroy something else. Paul could have sworn the oncologist on that sign had those Bitcoin laser red, red laser eyes. Drew's office door is ajar. Paul creeps around the corner. Drew's on the phone. So there I was, balls deep in this hooker's... Oh, hell! I gotta go. Well, well, well. So sorry to interrupt. By all means, continue. I'm enjoying this. Yeah, yeah, what's going on, playboy? What can I help you with this fine morning? Paul sits down on the couch. I've got this set of polyps. And I also got this lung biopsy they want to send down to W.E. Smash. Drew. Ah, ha-ha. That's murder, bro. What do you got? Adenocarcinoma or something? Paul. Yeah, well, just take a look. It's squamous cancer. Drew. But it's lighting up for TTF1. Paul. I think it's the SPT clone. It cross-reacts with some 3% of squamous lung cancers. Drew. Seriously? Educate, educate me, brother. Paul. They use the G3 clone at the Leafland Clinic in Ohio. There's a big lung page- There's a big lung pathologist up there who makes YouTube videos about this kind of thing. The dude is awesome. Have you run this by Frank? Paul. I probably should. He hasn't come out of his office in 72 hours. I think he's in the zone. Drew. He's going to want to see this. Didn't he validate our TTF1 antibody? Paul. Uh, I always feel weird knocking on his door when he's in the zone. Drew. What's the worst that will happen? Paul. You were on vacation the last time this happened. Drew. What happened? Nah, I shouldn't talk about it. What happened? Nah, I shouldn't talk about it. Oh, come on. You got to tell me now. Paul shuts the door. Okay, fine. He says, crouching down, lowering his voice. Last summer, before you got here, we had a crazy couple of weeks. They told you we lost that girl from Louisiana, right? So we were already short-staffed. Drew. I thought we were short-staffed now. Paul. Nah. This is nothing. We were short, short-staffed back then. Think Muggsy Bogue short-staffed. Anyways... We had two weeks back-to-back where the slide count was like 850. And on one of the PAs, and one of the PAs had a seizure. And the other one's cat had a stroke. So two of the partners were in there grossing placentas. Drew. No shit? Paul. Yeah, man. There was blood everywhere. So at this end of the gauntlet, the two PAs came back. And finally, three of the surgeons left for some meeting, and the slide count came back to earth. Haven't felt that relieved since the end of Pathboards. Drew. And then what happened? He's leaning forward, sipping his coffee. Paul. Frank hadn't come out of his office in four days. Nobody even saw him go to the bathroom. I mean, I knew he was hardcore introverted and basically a savant genius pathologist, but everyone has their breaking point. I guess his wife was back from Japan visiting some family, so nobody was around to check on him. Eventually, the group VP, Jan, notices something is up. 
So she knocks on his door at like three in the afternoon on Wednesday. No answer. So she knocks again. Louder. This time, two of us gathered around the door. No answer. So I call facilities. After like 20 minutes, this dude walks in the, in the office back door. Big guy. Brown ropers and a plaid shirt. He seems to know his way around the place. His name badge said Arturo. Jan made eye contact with him as he reached down to find the master key from the key ring on his right belt loop. I can still see... I can, I can still hear those keys jingling in my head. Drew. And then what happened? Hurry up, this is making me want to pee. Paul. Arturo, or Artie as they call him, finds the right key and puts it in the doorknob and slowly twists it open. The lock was, was stuck, so it took a minute. Jan was getting impatient, so she started shoving on the door. Then the door swung open, and all you could see was a pile of AFIP textbooks and a stack of slide trays up to the ceiling. There was an old camping cot on the left side of the office next to the bookshelf. You could smell a layer of sweat and grime all over the room. Frank was behind his microscope, and he was just sitting in a weird posture. Jan called out to him. He just sat there with one arm out as if he was reaching for another slide tray. His phone was off the hook, and his window screensaver was swirling in the background. Jan looked at us and said, Oh, fuck. He's catatonic again. Sheila walked in and then Sheila walked in about then and said, "Oh man, does anyone have a, have the medicine from last time?" Drew, "Last time?" Paul, "Apparently it happened before in 1993 right before the Orange Bowl." Drew, "That's an insane level of detail, bro. How do you remember all of this?" Paul, "I'm traumatized. We had to help the EMTs pick him up. He was covered his own in his own sweat and urine." Drew, did he sign out all of his cases? Paul, every last one. Jan pulled up his Copath account, and the guy dictated some 250 gallbladders. Now she checks his account every time the number gets over 100. Drew, so did they figure out what precipitates his catatonic episodes? Paul, nobody knows. They assume stress. Frank gets real pissed if anyone brings it up. I think he's in denial. Drew. They definitely don't want to lose him. Dude is the backbone of this practice. He's the second incarnation of Juan Rose Eye. Chapter 5 Jimmy finished the last cubes of cheese with the residual crumbs of potato cakes on his plate. He took the white cocktail napkin from under his plate and reached up with his left hand gently wiping his upper and lower lips, forgetting a large string bean had been lodged in his incisors. That fragment of string bean had been in his tooth since lunch, and it's a shame he didn't remember to get a toothpick. Now he was in the cocktail line. <clears throat> Jimmy had to uphold his responsibility to the cab, lags, cab lab circle of trust and fill the cups with orange punch. He puts down his plate and walks over to the punch bowl where the loud woman wearing a cowboy hat is entertaining two other people. Jimmy. Hello. Mind if I slide past your cowboy hat and get some punch? Lady. Is it that big? She says, smiling. Jimmy. I don't know why I said that. I meant to say slide past you. 
I don't know why I placed an emphasis on your loud, slightly obnoxious cowboy hat. Lady, you're doing it again, Jimmy. You sound like Ron over there with all these microaggressions. Isn't he that guy with the hedgehog? Jimmy, how do you know my name? And it's technically not his hedgehog. It's from this girl he used to date in med school. I'm surprised the animal is still alive. But yes, it's nice to meet you. Jimmy pauses, waiting for her name. Lady, Phyllis. But everyone around here calls me Tilly. So, what brings you over to this side of the room? Jimmy, pleasure to meet you, Tilly. I'm here to refill the punch for Ron and myself, but I can see it's running low. The Cab Lab CEO busts in. His name is Rory. Rory. Jagoff? What's the big guy up to these days? I gotta come check in more often. Feel like I never get to say hi to you guys. You're the backbone of this practice. Jimmy. Hello, Rory. Thanks for the party. You need some punch? Rory. I'm good, but I see you do, pointing to his empty cup. And it appears we are running low. Tilly, you bet your boots we are. Rory, come on now. You can't throw a Christmas party with no punch. Jimmy, it's quite all right. You know you know what? There's enough for two cups here. It's been great meeting you both. Hate to drink and run, but, you know, nature calls. Jimmy doesn't wait for Rory, the CEO, or Tilly, the affable Texan, to respond. He swiftly grabs the two glasses and starts walking to the men's room. Jimmy slid out of that cocktail hour doing a smooth walk you sometimes see gymnasts do at the Olympics. Low to the ground, kneeling, almost lunging. The vice grip of social anxiety had been creeping up over him over the last hour listening to industry people. The drinks helped. He always felt like he was out of the loop. It was enough just to keep up with the latest advances in breast pathology. The oncologists want to throw her too on anything with a nucleus. There was a time in residency where he was good at the arithmetic involved in appraising new assays. That muscle had begun to atrophy. And then there was his wife. She was dead set on having another kid. And last month he'd checked the credit card bill and there was $8,000 from the fertility clinic down the street. This is what pissed him off the most. Jimmy, muttering to himself while gliding down the hallways of Cab Lab. We didn't even use the in vitro method. This were like two months of Clomid. Where do they get off charging that kind of money? Ron, what kind of money? Jimmy jumps up, startling, startled, spilling one of the punch glasses on his pant leg and then on his shoe. Jagoff! How did you get here? Ron, I walked... Let me get that glass of punch, he says, swiping the non-spilled glass from Jimmy's hand. Jimmy staring at him blankly. Ron sips the glass lazily. Saw you over there talking to Rory. You make partner early or something? Ron lets out a high-pitched siren of flatus. Jimmy, can you not do that here? Ron, sorry. Probably that cottage cheese from last night. Don't normally buy that stuff. Jimmy, you watched some Arnold documentary again? 
hitting the weights. Ron, Jimmy, you know I'm always in the mass building phase. Jimmy, you know the real bodybuilders on Venice Beach actually lift the weights in addition to eating cottage cheese. Ron, Jimmy, your judgmental attitude is not productive. Diet is 80% of the game, probably closer to 90. Jimmy, whatever. I need to take a leak. Hold this. He hands Ron the second glass. Jimmy rounded the corner into the men's bathroom. It was one of those slick corporate airport-style designs. The white tiles extended to the entryway. A couple snake plants in the corner. The air conditioning wafted the crisp aroma of fresh urinal cakes. That was one of the things they didn't skimp on at Cab Lab. Only the finest urinal cakes. He glanced at himself in the mirror and continued over the urinals and let it rip. It was the high-pressure white, well-hydrated urine assaulting the fresh pink urinal cake. You know, that pent-up urine from when you break the seal after the first couple rounds of cocktails. He'd been standing at the urinal for about 45 seconds. He noticed a drain grill about two feet to the right on the floor. At first, Jimmy wasn't paying attention. A static sound was coming from the drain with a mixture of channel-flipping noises Jimmy hadn't heard since he was maybe six years old. A mixture of country music and sports announcers. It caught Jimmy's ear by now, but he wasn't scared, possibly because of the alcohol in his system. He was curious. Jimmy, why is there music coming from the drain? It's like somebody with an old transistor radio is just hanging around the pipes. Drain pipe. Your eerie music and static rising up from the drain. Jimmy, I still got a little pee left. And here goes nothing. Jimmy aims the stream of urine two feet to the right and into the drain pipe. Drain pipe with a sound flickering and three small insects scurrying out of the drain. Jimmy, running out of urine, zips up his fly. What's going on down there? The drain pipe emits a rattle and a grrrr. Jimmy crouches down and inspects the drain pipe. Then he feels a rumbling through his palms as they lay flat on the bathroom tile. Jimmy knew something was about to happen. He stands back. Then, in a sequential eruption of concrete and bathroom tile, the drain pipe explodes like a Hawaiian volcano towards the ceiling sprinklers. Jimmy is blown back towards the wall. He lands on his side and looks toward the drain pipe, now with a gaping concrete hole below and a settling pile of dust. The sides of the hole, still lined with the residual intact tiles, now show two large black humanoid hands covered with black and gray hair. The hands shuffle around and grip the sides of the concrete hole as Jimmy fades out of consciousness. Jimmy wakes up five minutes later and sees a male silverback gorilla bent over, scraping up some bubblegum from off the bathroom tiles about a foot away from him. Jimmy lets out a shriek of terror and jumps to his feet. The gorilla lets out a roar and shows his teeth. The gorilla grabs Jimmy by the throat and chest, pinning him against the high, uh, against the high wall, about six feet up, against the, high, against the back wall, about six feet high. Gorilla, are you the asshole who peed on me?
Jimmy, whimpering. No? Gorilla. Really, Chairman Mao? The gorilla shakes him and shucks him up against the bathroom tile. Jimmy. Mao? That's super racist. And why are you choking me? Gorilla. So you did piss in the drain, didn't you? Jimmy. Okay, fine. I peed down the drain, but only because there was some creepy noise coming from a transistor radio or something. Come on, man. Put me down. Gorilla. Dropping dropping Jimmy to the floor. Fine. But that's just that's not just any radio. Jimmy. Ow! Jimmy puts his hand on his hip, rubbing a bruise as he rises to his feet. Gorilla. That radio sustained me. It's a 1973 Panasonic dual-wave radio. It's been my only connection to the outside world. Jimmy. Where did you learn to talk? Gorilla. From the radio. Between that and the occasional Sunday paper that gets tossed down here, Gorilla is starting to calm down. Jimmy. How'd you get here? Or... Down there, specifically. Ron lazily walks into the bathroom, biting into a crisp apple. He stops, looks at the gorilla and at Jimmy, talking with his jaw dropped open with pieces of apple pulp tumbling down his shirt and onto the white bathroom tile. Jimmy. Ron, it's not what you think in a comically feminine intonation. Gorilla. What's that supposed to mean? I'm the victim here. The gorilla backs away momentarily. Jimmy. There was a noise coming from the drain pipe, and then the floor exploded, and this gorilla jumped out. I was unconscious for the last five minutes. Jimmy turns to the gorilla. By the way, how'd you pull that off? Gorilla. I got some plastic explosives from my orangutan friend at the Dallas Zoo last year. Remember that break-in that made the papers? Yeah, that was us. I was waiting for the right time to use it, and then you peed on my radio. The gorilla glares at Jimmy, still visibly annoyed. Ron, wait a minute. What's happening? Why is there a talking gorilla in the cab lab bathroom? Gorilla, is that what they're calling this place now? Jimmy. How long have you been down there? Gorilla. Since the Carter administration, I believe. Ron. What's your name? Gorilla. My lab name was A6M0. Jimmy. A6M0? Where have I heard that before? Gorilla. It's the Zero. The Mitsubishi A6M0. The nimble Japanese fighter airplane that initially cut its teeth during the 1940-41 conflict with China... They wiped out Chiang Kai-shek's Air Force, and not a single Japanese A6M0 was lost. Recovered pilots' diaries from the first half of World War II recount the plane, quote, handled like a dream, changing direction and airspeed with the flick of the wrist. They called me A6M0, zero for short, because I was supposed to be the lab animal that never went down. The gorilla gazes mysteriously out the frosted bathroom wall window. Jimmy. Oh, that's right. Cab Lab has the most comprehensive immunohistochemistry menu in all of Texas. Ron. More like all of the South. Gorilla. More like from here to Alaska. 
Guys, Cab Lab is the big Cab Lab is the big leagues. <clears throat> Jimmy. But I thought they used mouse or rabbit serum for their antibodies. Why would they need you? Gorilla. Come on, man. You know what's been going on with these new soft tissue tumors? They have like five new recurrent gene fusions identified since the last WHO classification. The lab that develops the first surrogate immunostain takes home the prom queen. Ron. You messed up that Sean Connery line, by the way. It's fu- Jimmy. Ron, can you forget about Sean Connery quotes for one day? We've got a giant talking gorilla here. You sure you want to call you? You sure you want us to call you Zero? Gorilla. Actually, call me Chaz. Ron. Okay, Chaz. You haven't yet told us how you wound up here. Chapter 6. Frank, Jefferson, and the boys were stranded in the SMU gymnasium on Saturday. They shared the gym with an unknown Comanche Indian shaman with a 1973 Panasonic transistor radio. An earthquake was unfolding before their horrified eyes. On the east end of the court, Jefferson was dangling from the, from the ledge over a 30-foot drop into a dark brown chasm with water vapor rising from the unknown depths and a thick, oily substance seeping from the walls. Jefferson began frantically reciting the Lord's Prayer between tears of fear and grasps of air. And gasps of air. A low groan of shifting earth rose from the west side of the court, but it was more than earth. It sounded like a being of some sort, a subterranean being, a demon. The gymnasium grew hot. The groaning demon voice, with the strength of some large, unspeakable mammal from another age, the other two boys were on the opposite side of the bleachers, whimpering and clinging to the scaffolding, their knuckles white with effort. They looked across the chasm at one another, meeting eyes. Guy one, Sean, opens his mouth as if to warn his friend of, shum- of something. His vocal cords seize up with fear. No words came out. Frank was waking up from his catatonic state. His chin covered in his own saliva. His right leg stretched off the side of the earthen chasm wall like some angler's bait. Frank, groggily, says, Holy mackerel! How'd we get here? Jefferson, Help! I don't want to die. Please help me. Frank, Hang in there, string bean. We'll figure this out. Hey, you guys okay over there? Looks at Sean and guy number two. Sean. I don't know what's going on, man, but I think we're done for. Guy number two. Yells from the northern bleachers. Frank, I didn't get a chance to meet you before the game. My name's Bobby. Frank. This is an odd time for introductions, Bobby, but it's a pleasure. Bobby. Is there any rope on your side? Frank. No. But I've got two strips of beef jerky and some tang. Jefferson, frantically and tearful. Can can you guys be serious? Sean. Look, there's a hole opening up on the back wall. Frank. Isn't that the side facing the water main off Harry Hines Boulevard? 
The earth heaved and crumbled with the chasm growing ever larger down the center line of the basketball court. It grew wider with every minute, threatening to bring down the bleachers on either side. The floor of the chasm was narrow, a crevasse, the black depths of which none could ascertain. There was a deeper layer. Frank caught a glimpse of it. It was the steaming flow of black-brown fluid in its flowing fury. It had the texture of lava. At the far end of the court, the shale-lined walls of the chasm were vibrating. There was something behind the wall. In a violent circular motion, a tunnel opened from the far wall, the side facing Harry Hines Boulevard. It produced a thick cloud of water vapor, earth, and an oily substance. Three figures emerged through the haze. Two of them were mechanical, like some cyborg Cujo. The third was a worker dressed head-to-toe in hazmat gear, covered in a layer of soot. The worker was wearing night vision goggles with an eerie red-green backlight. The worker was ambling forward menacingly. He had a walkie-talkie at his right hip and a high-pressure steam hose in his left arm. It gave the look of a soldier in a chemical zone. The basketball court grew silent, but for the heavy drone of the subterranean river of God knows what. He paused and waved his arm about in in an attempt to clear some of the vapor cloud around him. He pulled off his mask and goggles. The worker had a thick brown beard and raccoon eyes lined with soot. He stood there, dumbfounded. Frank, who are you, worker? Water. Jefferson's grip finally gave out, and he tumbled across the slippery shale wall of the chasm, landing with his face six inches from the window in the earth with a speeding river of black fluid. He was exhausted, unable to speak. The others were barely hanging on. Frank, tell me your name and I'll throw you some water. Worker, I'm from Al. I'm Al from the Boil Corporation. We boil soil to get oil. Frank, sounds like a lot of toil, Al. Nice. Frank, let me guess, you are from somewhere far away, Al. You could say that. Can I get that water? Frank throws a canteen down into the chasm. Al catches it one-handed and gulps the contents with a savage thirst. You can see a glistening jugular on his neck, undulating with the bobbing laryngeal reflex. His face was draining sweat and soot onto his forearms. He reached up and swiped his brow and winced with discomfort as some of the grit got into his eyes. Frank looked around the bleachers urgently for something to help him get down into the chasm without losing his footing. He crawled under the rows and found an old training rope strapped to one of the floor hooks. Probably someone forgot to take it down after the last pep rally, and if only someone could see what he had, what had unfolded this sunny Saturday. Frank stretched himself a few yards across the dusty wooden gym floor, grasped the rope, and cut it with his pocket knife. Then he pulled himself back and knotted the rope around the bleacher legs closest to the, to the edge. There was a solid ten feet of slack, plus a four-foot drop. Frank sized up the drop and hurled himself down the rope. 
his sneakers slipping and lapping at the chasm's oily sidewall. The water vapor quickly permeated the rope, making it slippery, a wild card Frank could not have planned for. Frank loosened his grip and used the slippery rope to his advantage, gliding down like some cartoon firefighter. And then the rope ended, and Frank sailed through the misty black air. He hit the ground, immediately tucking himself into a roll in the direction of impact. Jefferson, Frank, is that you? He says through the mist. Frank, I got you, buddy. Just hang on. Al, Al flips the canteen into his pack and walks over nonchalantly with a sure-footedness of a mountain goop of a mountain goat. Here, Frank, is it? Uh, but these grips over your sneakers. Frank turns around, clasps the rubbery shoe cover. They had gritty, sandy soles, a simple yet ingenious device. He walks ten more steps to Jefferson, clinging onto the rock with a surge of confidence. Frank grabs Jefferson by the torso and starts dragging him towards Al. Al shuffles forward a bit and kneels down to one. One of the mechanical drilling robots. The machine had four wheels with a hydraulic mechanism to raise and lower itself. It had an unusual familiarity with Al, almost like a golden retriever to its master. Al tinkered with a few settings on the side of the machine. In a whir of electronics and satisfying clicks and turning of gears, a flatbed was formed on top of the machine with the semblance of a gurney. Al, there you go, partner. Strap your friend on there. Jefferson, to that thing? Frank, what company did you say you worked for? I never heard of the Boyle Corporation. Al, look, I'll explain more over lunch. Jefferson, lunch? Jefferson, sweaty, frustrated, and panicking. Frank, whatever. Okay, you're going on board this thing. Uh, Jefferson. Frank and Al put their hands together, hoisting Jefferson aboard the dog-like machine, buckling him in with the straps. When he was secure, the machine made an optimistic preep of affirmation. Frank knew that if Al meant them any harm, he would have killed them already. This logic, of course, he would share with Jefferson or the others. The boy's state of mind was already fragile. He wasn't going to jeopardize it further. The machine seemed to look at Al briefly for direction and approval before carefully gliding down the slippery rocks to the sheer face of the chasm wall, with Frank's rope dangling off the side, covered in water, dust, and oil. The robot made a few clicks and whirs, engaging its hydraulics to raise Jefferson four feet up to the rope. Al looked at the wall and then the robot and shook his head. Al, okay, let's bring out Ollie. And with that, Al whistled loudly through his teeth, summoning a six-wheel machine twice the size of the one carrying Jefferson. The six-wheeler, Ollie, drove to the wall face and shot three sets of hooks into the rock face, each precisely four feet apart from one another. One at the top, and two midway from the ground they stood on. Then Al walked up to Ollie and climbed onto the chassis. The hooks had tension wires, tension wires ex- extending from them. 
anchored to Ollie. Al methodically tugged one, tugged on each one, testing its strength. Then he produced a rescue ladder from a compartment on Ollie's backside. Al slung the ladder over his back and began scaling the wall, guided by the tension wires and a remarkable display of strength and agility. Frank watched him rise above the dark mist of the chasm floor. Al, from the top. All right, you guys, uh, re- you guys ready? Al drops the rescue ladder from the ledge of the sidewall. Frank and Jefferson watch, dumbfounded as it ra- unravels down the wall to the chasm floor. Frank, Jeff, are you are your arms and legs good? You go first. Jefferson, uh, ankle broke on the way down. Whatever, let's go before this whole place goes under. With that, Jefferson and Frank work their way up the ladder. Sean, from the opposite side of the chasm, finds a diagonal seam in the wall and slides down the widest portion. Al waves to the smaller robot, and the machine starts roving to Sean, lowering its hydraulics for Sean to climb on. Okay, that is the end of chapter six. So I just read to you chapters one through six of No Lab for Old Men. And there may be a few gaps in there, but I think you get the idea of storyline that's starting to unfold, hopefully. And we will continue with chapters seven through 12 on a future episode. And that's all for today's episode of Three Deeper Cuts Podcast, your lifestyle magazine for the practicing surgical pathologist, bringing you high signal content fueled by 10% buffered neutral formalin. Hope you enjoyed listening. If you like this content, subscribe to the newsletter at 3deepercuts.substack.com. Find us on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. And again, I'm your host, Chuck G. Until next time, be well and stay curious. Goodbye.